Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci Advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. One of the things that we're most excited about from a science perspective that we're doing is we're working with drugs well outside Lipinski's boundaries or Lipinski's rules. And the drugs we're most excited about are well outside that. So from a molecular weight perspective... We've got a very solid data set into the single-digit kilodalton range, which is two or three times what historically has been possible. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Bench Talk Bios, a podcast series by LifeSite Partners where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, my guest is Dr. Ryan Beal. He's the co-founder and CEO of Dive Biosciences. Doctor, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me. Let's begin by grounding our listeners with the elevator pitch. Where's Dive headquartered? How long have you been in business? And give me an idea of what sort of business you do there. Yeah, thanks, Neil. Dive's headquartered in Southern California in Camarillo. We've been in business for about seven years. We're a private company focused on transdermal drug delivery. Just wrapped up our first phase two study and looking to legitimize transdermal as a legitimate third route of drug delivery. Okay. Since this is audio, people can't tell, but DIVE is spelled D-Y-V-E. And I looked it up in the Urban Dictionary and it means a small bodied bearded man. That can't possibly be right. (laughs) What does the name mean? Well, I have been known to have a beard, but that, and, (laughs) and I am relatively short, but that has nothing to do with the name. No, DIVE, speaks to diving into the skin is why we settled on the name. And it also is our way of saying what you see on the surface of dive, like an iceberg, there's always a lot more below the surface, but we have an elegant way to dive into the skin. Cool. All right. Well, we're going to get a lot more of that in just a minute, but first uh, we want to talk about you. You're in charge. People want to know what you're all about. So let's just start with the most basic questions, sir. Where were you born? I was born in Inglewood, Colorado, so an area of Denver. So I'm thinking ski bum? I grew up doing a lot of skiing. I started about as soon as I could walk. I was on a pair of skis, oh, uh, evolved to do both skiing and snowboarding, and I was even a ski bum for a short while in Vail, working at a t-shirt shop while I was in college. Which is better, Vail or Purgatory? Uh, purgatory. Oh, <laughs> nice, nice. Okay. So let's move forward. We're going to talk about your training. At the undergraduate level, this is kind of interesting. You got a BA from Dartmouth, class of 96, and your degree there was in biophysical chemistry, which is eh, mildly interesting, and, quote, studio art, end quote, which is what, huh, how, how does this work? Yeah, so studio art is about what it sounds like. It's doing art in a studio. (laughs) My focus was on oil painting. So I uh, had always been artistic growing up, but was a a science nerd. And while at Dartmouth, I also played football. And so I stumbled into studio quite simply because I needed an an easy class my first fall quarter there and took studio art and ended up falling in love with it. I had some great professors and ended up taking enough courses over time that 
it's become a major part of my life still today, but uh, ended up getting a degree in studio art as well. Oh, I mean, listeners obviously can't see this, but Ryan, I'm assuming is at home. I can't see that painting behind you. Did you do it? Not the one right behind me, but I have done a few in my office here and have them all over, basically all over my house and my mom's house. That's the extent <laughs> of where my artwork has been distributed. But I love it. It continues to be just a great outlet for me. Very cool. All right. So you did decide to get a real job instead of painting <laughs> because uh, after undergrad, you went to your an ND program at UPenn, which is known for producing some extremely fine physicians. This was the class of 2000. Did you have a specialty in mind? I did. I was always athletic and interested in athletics. And so I was headed down the orthopedic surgery route. I um, was oh, wow. planning to do likely a bunch of knees for the rest of my life. <laughs> That's where I was focused. But I don't know, perhaps for the best of knees everywhere, that didn't happen. I don't know. <laughs> you actually went straight on to McKinsey. Was there a dark night and you're like, I really don't want to operate on knees and I'd rather do McKinsey or how'd that the situation come about? Yeah, well, Penn is one of those kind of important forks in the road for me where I was lucky enough to get exposure to coursework over at Wharton and, oh, okay. you know, started taking classes over at Wharton and was really turned on to the business side of medicine. And simultaneously, my mentors over at the medical school, the orthopedic surgeons that I was scrubbing in with happened to have kids that were about my age. And I'd be in a case oh. holding retraction and they'd be talking about the advice they were giving their kids. I graduated in 2000. So this was you know some big evolutions going on in healthcare. And they would sit there while we were in surgery talking about how they were telling their kids not to go into medicine. No, And that left a big impact on me. You know, I still thought I would go back and practice even after I joined McKinsey but it really pushed me to explore other areas of medicine. And I got turned on by the business side of medicine. See, now that's a side of mentorship I had not heard before. It's like, yes, yeah, son, it? this really sucks. Don't do this. <laughs> yeah, and it was interesting. They didn't know they were talking to me. They thought they were talking to each other and they were talking about their kids. Oh, oh. I took that in. It had a really big impact. I looked up to these guys as, uh, and they were great surgeons. I said, man, if they're telling their kids not to go into what they're doing, what am I doing here? That was wow. a big part of it. Okay, so off on a different pathway to McKinsey. You were there for quite a while, 99 through 2007. I was wondering, since I've never been to such educational places, could you give me an example of, say, something about leadership and then maybe one about crisis management that you learned on the job there? The biggest thing for me at McKinsey at such a young age, and I'm in my early and mid-20s when I joined, I got exposure to a level of executive, you know, boardroom level, C-level executive, making decisions and contemplating decisions that I had only been aware of in books and in movies before. And so I was just yeah. exposed to that type of decision making at such a young age. It made a really big impact on me. But on the leadership side, what I saw is much more listening than talking among the true leaders. They did a lot of listening and a lot of leveraging their team and building good teams. And that's something that stuck with me throughout. And similarly on crisis management, what I saw over and over when crises were managed well was this sense of there is no problem that can't be solved. It may not be comfortable. It may be challenging, but it can be solved. Let's recognize the problem, leverage the team and work through and solve it. But it was kind of a way of removing the emotions from everyone hates a crisis and, hmm. and hates to fail. 
but there was this sense of among the great leaders that I saw a bit of the, there's a problem, we've got a team, let's solve it. There's one CEO, I won't mention his name, but it's somebody I admire in the biotech space. And he had started a company and the first direction they headed was just, it didn't work at all. And he turned on a dime, like overnight yep. and did something else. And I asked him about it. He goes, well, you need to know when to walk away. Did you witness that as well? Yeah, I've witnessed it over and over among very good CEOs. And it's that failure is okay as long as you recognize it and learn from it and move on. But I think that early recognition is a big piece of it. And then you hit on something else, that resiliency in a company, the ability to carry on through failure, especially I've been in the entrepreneurial space in life sciences about 16 years now. And resiliency is a big part of ultimately of success. When you see the quote overnight success, there's usually a 10, 15 year journey that preceded that overnight success. Just one more question. I'm curious about this process. Like the company I just mentioned, I'm guessing he got a lot of pushback from his original investors when he switched gears. Did you witness such a thing as well? It depends. Yes and no. I think it depends mostly, I think, on the stage of the company. A lot of early investors are oftentimes investing in the team and the people, and they're trusting you to make some of those difficult decisions, and they're behind you, and, and they're backing you and your team and your ability to move through some of those challenges. As you get more mature as a company, I think that becomes harder and harder. Okay. Now, I'm sort of lazy. I didn't get your CV. I just looked on LinkedIn. So there's this black box on LinkedIn between 2007 and 2011. Is that secret ops? Can we talk about that? <laughs> yeah, it was a very important time in my life personally. My first son was born in 2006. And my second son was born in 2009. And so I'd been at McKinsey. I was a summer associate in 1999, officially joined full-time in 2000. But I'd been there about six years when my first son was born and was traveling a lot like you do it when you're at McKinsey and really started contemplating some of those life choices. And, you know, I'm the kind of guy I, I want to coach the Little League soccer teams. I want to go volunteer in the classroom. And that was more important to me at that time. And so I stepped away from McKinsey, not really knowing what I was going to do. I knew it was going to be something entrepreneurial, but I did a lot of independent consulting, some angel investing during those four years. And both of my boys grew up in baby Bjorns attached to the front of me while I was on conference calls pacing around <laughs> my house. Uh, but those are a really important four years of my life. But there's not an appropriate box on LinkedIn to check that your kid was born and, yeah. and you spent some time with them. Those are great four years. And so you stuck with the whole healthcare industry and you're, you're moving through various iterations of that, investing, perhaps advising. And then along in, let me see, 2011, you found a company. This is called SkinGrin. This is a over-the-counter skincare products. How did this come about? Yeah, so one of the companies that I had helped invest in and start during that period of 2007 to 2011 was a group of medical aesthetic practices, so aesthetic dermatology practices. And we had built out multiple locations in Southern California. And part of that business was physician dispensed skincare products, you know, lotions and potions, moisturizers and eye creams and all of these kinds of things. With my business hat on, I just saw an opportunity. These were high margin products, but they don't turn a lot in the physician office. The retail isn't a huge component of the work. But I was thinking with all this inventory we have on hand and the 
availability of a much bigger audience online, was there an opportunity to essentially position an over-the-counter but online presence of physician-chosen products and help us turn the inventory? And that was the basic idea and got behind that. And that was my first foray into investing in one of my own businesses, other than the spinach stand and the t-shirts that I sold (laughs) when I was in high school and college and all those things. This is my first real business. And it is to this day. You can go online, dear listeners, and buy some of this stuff right now if you'd like. Yeah. And then comes another company that you actually founded while you were still at SkinGrim. This company is called InSource Medical. It's just a very different sort of thing. It's described as a physician network to share medical equipment. What? Yeah. So this also grew out of the work I was doing in building those aesthetic medical practices. And they all have equipment, laser machines, cool sculpting, oil therapy, this capital equipment that's quite expensive and sits in a corner the vast majority of the time. It sits idle 80 to 90% of the time. For the individual practice, it can still make sense to have it in the office. It still can generate a positive ROI, et cetera. But being a part of this group of practices, walking down the halls and seeing these machines just sit there drove me crazy. So I essentially said, is there a way that we could mobilize this equipment and build, in essence, a co-op of physician offices that would book machines and share them? And so in many ways, it was a logistics company that moved these various machines around from office to office, sometimes for a couple hours, sometimes for a couple weeks but mobilized them, shared in the capital equipment costs, but just kept them busy. It was a utilization, essentially a utilization arbitrage. And that was an important part of ultimately what led to Dive, which we'll get into. But one of my clients ultimately became one of the co-founders of Dive. All right. Well, let's dive into Dive. All right. Tell me about your (laughs) co-founder. This is the easiest segue I've ever worked with, by the way. (laughs) Well, one of my, uh, I'm in the office one day and One of our sales reps came in and said, hey, there's this doc that wants to meet with you. My first reaction was, is everything okay with the account? This was an Mm. in-source account that was using a few of the machines. And and she said, yeah, they're perfectly happy. He just noticed that you happened to be an MD and he knew you were CEO of this company. So he, he wants to meet with you because you're an MD. I had written an article in a trade magazine about pharmaceutical pricing and oncology. So completely separate from my in-source hat, but he recognized the name. He said, Brian Beal, he's an MD. He's also the CEO of this company. I got to meet this guy. Hmm. And so the good news was his office was in the same town where InSource was located, because I think if he was hours away, I probably would have come up with some good excuse not to drive up to Bakersfield or Davis and visit with him. But he was five minutes down the road. So I said, I'll go sit down and meet with this guy. We had a great conversation, but it turns out he was a former ophthalmic surgeon out of Cedars-Sinai, engineer by training, and very prolific inventor. At the time, he was in his 80s, no longer practicing and seeing patients, but had a busy aesthetics practice. And after sitting there with him for a while, old school physician, starched white coat, solid mahogany desk, the bookshelves behind him. I finally asked him, I said, Bruce, what are all those three ring binders behind you? There were all these six inch wide binders without labels on the spines. And I was just racking my brain thinking, are these patient charts? Are they, what are these? Hmm. And this was 45 minutes of the conversation. Oh, that's right. That's why I wanted to talk to you. (laughs) 
these are a bunch of my patents and I don't know what to do with them. And I'm getting, these were his words. He said, I'm getting up there in the years and I don't want to leave my family with a bunch of three ring binders. And that's wow. really what ultimately has become Dive, a set of his IP that he had developed related to transdermal drug delivery. And he was thinking about the skin's barrier function in a very different way than historically people had thought about it. He was, no pun intended, but he was looking at the skin through the lens of an ophthalmologist and just had a different take on it. And it was theoretical IP, some very early proof of concept. But my other co-founder and I, along with him, decided to start Dive. So we put in some capital. He put in some three-ring binders. <laughs> we said, let's go to work trying to reduce your theories down to practice. All right. So to be clear, this company is a platform play, that being the dermal delivery formulation of known drug entities. These known drug entities are they're currently dosed IV, oral, or maybe not at all due to unfavorable PKPD profiles. Ryan, it's a little unclear to me what the secret sauce is. I mean, is this a formulation of novel excipients or uh, just walk me through just a bit of what is the sauce? Yeah, the secret sauce is a formulation of known excipients, grass ingredients formulated in a unique way. Essentially, the big insight that we had early on, and Bruce in particular had early on, is historically the approach to breaching the skin barrier was largely solvent-based. The skin functionally is much like a brick wall where the skin cells are the bricks and the mortar between them is, uh, the lipid between them is like the mortar. And that historically the approach was to use solvents to destroy the mortar and create a channel yeah. where drugs could diffuse. And he had this idea of how do we work with the skin rather than against it and essentially coming up with ways to disrupt the fatty acid matrix, that fatty acid equilibrium and get these fatty acids to shift in that lipid matrix. And we use the term, and many people use the term, fluidize that lipid matrix, in essence, soften the mortar. And that was kind of step one of what ultimately led to the broader secret sauce. Well, do I use like, well, I don't, but if I would use a fentanyl patch, how is that being delivered? Yeah. So fentanyl, the steroids, nicotine, scopolamine, all of these things, in addition to using a patch and or a solvent, the APIs, the drugs themselves, yeah. all share very similar physiochemical properties. And they're small molecules and they're moderately lipophilic. And so if you're able to disrupt that outer layer of skin, even modestly, they're able to passively diffuse through the lipid. They're moderately fatty and they're very small so they can get through. The limitation is they get through very slowly. The patches, by the way, essentially work by trapping water evaporation from the skin and creating this hyperhydrotic environment on the surface of the skin, which causes those skin cells to swell. And if you can imagine bricks swelling, they will pull away from the mortar. And so whether it's a patch or a solvent or some combination, you create these small channels. And if you've got a small drug that's fatty, it will diffuse through passively. It diffuses through slowly. And in many cases, that's okay for a fentanyl patch or steroids or hormones. Slow delivery is okay because you want a nice, even basal level of drug in the body. And so for roughly 30 FDA-approved drugs today that are delivered that way, and but they all share those same common characteristics. They're small, they're moderately lipophilic, and they need a low level of a basal dose to have their clinical effect. So... 
Now, I'm not familiar with the exact how you one puts together a patch, but for your formulation, does the active ingredient, the API, does it have to be altered to be put in the formulation? It doesn't have to be. And we've done a lot with just a straight API. One thing that we have learned over the course of the seven years we've been at this is as much as we'd like to think it is as simple as having a secret sauce, that secret sauce, once married with any individual API, chemistry is complex. Each formulation is different. So some APIs we may modify, but not in the traditional sense as a medicinal chemist would think about it. We may think through charge state or pH and some of those things, but we're not doing encapsulation. We're not pegylating. We're not doing those things. It's essentially the straight API. And then the secret sauce itself may vary somewhat depending on the API and the pharmacokinetic profile that we want to see. Okay. I have one more general question, and then we're going to talk about specific examples. The drugs that you could put in, you mentioned the example of the patch. A lot of these drugs are lipophilic or they're really small. Or do you have the same profile of drugs that you could use, or have you been able to expand upon that? Yeah, it's one of the things that we're most excited about from a science perspective that we're doing is we're working with drugs well outside Lipinski's boundaries or Lipinski's rules, which do define that molecular weight and that lipophilicity. And the drugs we're most excited about are well outside that. So from a molecular weight perspective, we've got a very solid data set into the single digit kilodalton range, which is two or three times what historically has been possible. We've got an emerging data set in the double-digit kilodalton range and interest from partners in just exploring triple-digit kilodalton drugs. So well outside that range, lipophilicity, we've gone from, uh, we essentially tested the bounds of you know hydrophilic to lipophilic and everything in between, and that doesn't seem to influence it. I think when we run into a barrier, it will likely be based on molecular weight, just because there's only so much you can do with size. But the other physicochemical properties don't seem to influence what we're able to get through the skin. All right. So let's move from the hypothetical to the concrete and let's look at the pipeline. The asset furthest along, which I'm going to guess is your proof of concept asset, this is called DYV702. It has completed phase two testing. Ryan, what's the indication here for the formulation and what known drug did you formulate? Yeah, this is a treatment for acute gouty arthritis. So gout flares, as they would be commonly known, the drug we're working with here is sodium bicarbonate or a buffering agent. And the goal is we are trying to neutralize or alkalinize the joint space and essentially leverage the anti-inflammatory properties linked to local microenvironment pH modulation. This program was born out of a lot of the work that we've been doing on oncology which I know we'll get into, but that's where we initially started to show that we could very efficiently deliver various alkalinizing agents or buffering agents through the skin. And the work we were doing on oncology led us to look for other clinical indications where we may be able to exploit that same mechanism of action. So in gout's case, it's a novel use for sodium bicarbonate, but the chemistry is very simple. It's just acid-based chemistry. And alkalinizing or neutralizing that local joint space. Okay. So a little personal reveal here. I have an ex-girlfriend who tried to get me to drink some teaspoons of vinegar every morning because I was too acidic, which I don't know what the hell that means. (laughs) But I kept trying to tell her, you know, my blood is naturally buffered. So Ryan, my blood is naturally buffered. How is this going to work? 
Yeah. So the answer will differ a little bit depending on the indication, but the bottom line is you're absolutely right. Your blood better not change pH because that's a dire situation. The blood is one of the most magnificent buffers there is, and we have multiple mechanisms to maintain the pH of the blood, as you know. How I think about it at the very highest level is one of the things we're doing is we're increasing the buffering capacity of the blood. So we're not altering pH, One way I often describe it is if we go into the oncology side, you think about targeted therapies and targeted therapies, as we use the term today, it's biologically targeting a tumor. Hmm. In this case, we're using chemical targeting. We're increasing the buffering capacity of the blood. That buffer is going to travel around in the blood until it finds something that it can react with, until it finds an acidic microenvironment. And so in the case of gout, And in gout's case, we're applying it locally, but we're just increasing the buffering capacity as it runs into a microenvironment that is more acidic. In this case, the joint space, it will exert its buffering properties. Similarly, on the oncology side, we're just increasing the buffering capacity of the system of the body. But once it finds that local tumor microenvironment that's acidic, now it can neutralize that microenvironment. I need to go back and do something really basic. The formulation... It's a cream. It's a, a liquid. It's what is it? Yes, it's a cream as it comes off of our, you know, manufacturing line in the lab or commercial scale. It's a cream. Aesthetically, it looks and feels like a high-end moisturizer, or a nice lotion. All right, all right. So the, the phase two program, I did mention this. It is called Targets. You enrolled ninety-eight patients who are prone to these acute gout attacks. This is a randomized trial: the drug versus a vehicle. Two questions here. The trial was conducted in 20 different centers. Why? Was it hard to recruit? It's easy to recruit. It's hard to predict when you're going to get a gout flare. And so the way this trial was designed, it was prospective. So you'd come in with a history of gout and then you'd go home with trial product. But then you need to sit around and wait for a patient to have a flare. And so we wanted to over-enroll. So we had a large top of the funnel of people with product, and then we would wait for them to flare. So that was why we had 20 trial sites. See, I could have reduced your trial sites, but if you just send them (laughs) home with a case of wine. That helps too. Yeah. yeah. See, that would have done it. (laughs) Okay. The second question I had is all the patients, whether active or placebo arm, received colchicine, which is a gout-approved anti-inflammatory agent. Wouldn't that, again, sort of delay your patients having a flare? Why would you do that? So all patients received colchicine on an acute level. And so when they started to flare, everyone took colchicine. And this was something the FDA wanted us to include in this trial. And essentially, it's driven by the fact that gout is extremely painful. Sure. And so the FDA wanted to ensure that in the instance where DYV702 had no drug effect, they didn't want patients going without some pain control. So everyone got colchicine, a standard dose of colchicine on day one of the flare. And then half of the patients had a vehicle topical, half of them had DYV702 as a topical. All right. Now, I looked at the deck. For listeners, the endpoint of this is called the SPID, S-P-I-D, which is the sum of pain intensity difference from baseline. The readout of the trial is that it is complete. The primary endpoint for protocol assessment was significant. The full analysis set was not. What happened here? Yeah, so the SPID score we looked at, and SPID stands for sum of pain intensity difference, that SPID from baseline to day seven was something we looked at 
you know, like all these trials, it was an exploratory trial. We were trying to understand how the drug worked, where it worked. Spit out to day seven was the wrong endpoint in retrospect. Now, this is the joy of clinical trials. The Monday morning quarterbacking is easy. The Friday evening game planning is tough. What happened is as you get into day three, four, five, six of a gout flare, they naturally do start to resolve. And so there was a lot of noise in the back end of that sum of the pain intensity difference. So a lot of variability, which obviously impacts the statistics. And so the main difference between our full analysis set and the per protocol, the per protocol patients had to adhere to the protocol in particular in the first 24 hours. And when they did that is when you saw a real separation of the curves. Our impact was very fast, but if they were less adherent in those first couple of days, by the time they started taking it, there was so much noise. So we oh. saw a nice trend in our favor, but didn't hit statistical significance. Now, as we go back and continue development of the product, our endpoints will switch. We don't think SPID's the right one. It doesn't reflect the clinical utility of the drug, but it also doesn't really reflect what's important to patients. What's important to patients is, is my pain controlled in the first 24 to 48 hours? And there we saw a very nice response. Uh, you did have some secondary readouts as far as use of rescue meds, physical functions. Could you just address those bullets for me? Yeah, I think of the secondary endpoints that we looked at, three or four really stand out. You hit on two of them. One was the decrease in rescue medication usage. Rescue meds are rescue pain medications. About Roughly about a third of gout patients, in addition to taking the current standard of care, reach for the medicine cabinet for a pain medicine. This could be another prescription strength anti-inflammatory. It could be an opioid, et cetera. But the pain is so intense, they ultimately need some backup or a rescue medication. We saw a near elimination of rescue medication usage. And to us and to the physician community, it's a great indicator that we were controlling that most severe pain. Patients didn't need to reach for the medicine cabinet. Uh, Physical function is another one where we saw a very nice improvement in physical function. Here we use the Promise PF20, which essentially is assessing the activities of daily living, are able to carry a bag of groceries, walk down the stairs, ambulate to the restroom, et cetera, and saw a statistically significant improvement there, you know, both at 24 hours and at day seven, just showing that not only reducing pain, but the second order implications of being in pain, whether it's reaching for the medicine cabinet or being able to walk around, we saw a nice response there. The other areas, you know, we saw a nice and improved overall response rate and a decrease in tenderness as well. So all these second order indicators that pain control is really taking place here. So phase two in the can, where do we go from here? So the next step is we're interacting with the FDA now to get clearance to proceed on the next study. We're positioning it as a phase 2B, but it would be our first pivotal. We think we have an opportunity to test what ultimately would be the regulatory endpoint, which is a 24-hour response rate, and are excited by what we'll see there. We also think there may be an opportunity to eliminate colchicine from the protocol and truly do a head-to-head with no colchicine Mm -hmm. on board. And I think we've got the data now to give the agency comfort that the product is exerting an effect and inserting it quickly so you don't need that standard of care in the background. All right. Well, let's go on to the second asset. This has been in the news of late. This is called DYV-800. It's being investigated in the setting of solid tumors. And the news is that you recently announced you're working with Moffitt Cancer Center on this. What's the nature of the collaboration and how did it come about? 
Yeah, this collaboration, we're very excited about it. This is also using local microenvironment pH modulation, in this case, to address one of the hallmarks of solid tumors, which is that uh, acidic milieu around the tumor, which has all kinds of secondary implications, as you know. The group out of Moffitt, and there was also a group out of University of Arizona, whom we've worked with, looked at delivering orally delivering alkalinizing agents and various buffering agents as a way to control the acidity of the tumor microenvironment, both as monotherapy, but also as a way to potentiate existing immunotherapies. They saw excellent results going back to the 2013, 14, 15 timeframe in animal models, ultimately went as far as phase one study in humans, but they couldn't deliver a therapeutic dose by mouth. While the animal served as a great proof of concept, their guts are much less acidic than the human gut. And so you couldn't deliver orally a therapeutic dose because it was a combination of being consumed in the gut and having adverse events, you know, GI distress, et cetera. So once we saw the failure in the human studies, we reached back out to these investigators, many of whom are now at Moffitt, and said, we'd like to repeat the work, use same set of APIs, but we believe we can take them through the skin. And the overarching belief is if we can replicate what they've previously shown in animals, it's easily translatable to humans. We feel like we can bypass the gut but have that same clinical efficacy. Uh, just three quick points for our listeners' edification. Uh, Ryan used the phrase, as you know. The reason he did that is because he knows that <laughs> I know a lot about the tumor microenvironment. I kind of book about it. And yeah, hypoxia and related acidity is a huge deal. It makes T cells work very badly. The other notes is the person on in the end of Moffat, his name is Dr. Gillies. Is that correct? Yes. That's correct. Okay. Yep. He has been looking at the effect of localized pH on therapeutics for a very long time. He was absolutely a leader in this space. And he co-authored a paper in 2020 called, get this, Immunotherapy on Acid. Opportunities and challenges, and I encourage our listeners to look that one up. Ryan, where are we in this program in the development? By the way, that's an excellent paper, and Dr. Gillies and his team have been a pleasure to work with, and I'm very excited about it. So where we are, it's a three-phase project. The first couple phases were all about understanding the effect on pH specifically around the tumor. So they've developed a very neat protocol using MRI to assess tumor microenvironment pH. So step one was saying, hey, if we apply this to a rodent, can we actually detect a change in pH around the tumor? And can we visualize that under MRI? Based on that work, we're moving into which the short answer is yes, we are seeing it. It's still early days in the research, but we're seeing some nice modulation of that tumor microenvironment pH. It's very neat to see visually under MRI. Step two is to understand the dosimetry. What's required? What kind of dose? How frequently do we need to apply it to maintain the desired pH range? And then step three will be to move it into tumor models, very similar to what Dr. Gillies and Dr. Palan Thomas, his colleague there, have previously done. And they published a paper in 2016 where they orally delivered buffering agents in combination with various checkpoint inhibitors and adoptive T-cell transfer. And we're essentially repeating that study, but with topically applied agent. I mean, we're just in the midst of getting ready to kick off those tumor studies. And Have you settled on a tumor type? We have. We're studying this in melanoma models right now. Ultimately, the pathophysiology 
is shared among many solid tumor types, but melanoma gives us a great way to study it in animal models. It's a very aggressive tumor type. So the punchline is we get to end points very quickly. All right. So moving on, I mean, this does seem to open all sorts of possibilities. In theory, you could put a lot of stuff in your secret sauce. Are there any other assets you'd like to mention that you're cooking up right now? Yeah, we've got a couple in our internal pipeline that we're quite excited about. DYV024, which is for psoriasis. It's leveraging a known immunosuppressant that's currently delivered orally, but has an onerous adverse event profile. It's uh, highly hepatotoxic, and we think we can dose this through the skin and deliver a therapeutic dose to the plaque lesions without exposing the system to toxic levels of the drug. And then DYV350, which is a cytolytic agent, we're testing in adipolysis or fat lysis very similar to uh, many of the bile salts and bile acids that are being injected or studied, being studied to be injected for submental fat, flank fat, abdominal fat, et cetera. And we think mm-hmm. we've got an elegant approach to take those through the skin. And then the only other thing I'll mention is we're in a collaboration with a top 10 pharmaceutical company looking at seven undisclosed assets of theirs across numerous therapeutic areas. Each one of those has a unique delivery challenge that we're working with them to overcome. I just have one regulatory question, actually. If you take an approved drug and you reformulate it in this way, do you have to go back to square one as far as the FDA is concerned to do safety all over? The short answer is it depends on the drug. In many cases, the answer will be no, where there's a drug that's well characterized and where we're going after an indication where that drug is already approved. And and to make it even easier, if there's already a topical that we can significantly turbocharge, that makes it very easy. On the other end of the extreme, you know, some of the drugs we're looking at where the drug may be well characterized, it may not be characterized for this indication. And gout's a good example of that, where we're working with one of the most basic drugs you can imagine, sodium bicarbonate, but it hasn't been approved or used for the treatment of acute gouty arthritis. And so we're going down the 505B1 pathway there, for example. So it'll vary by drug, but there are advantages of each of those pathways from a business perspective anyway. Going down the B2 pathway is obviously expedited and gets us to market more quickly. The B1 pathway, on the other hand, gives us some interesting exclusivity and IP advantages and spits out a, a novel chemical entity on the back end. But the short answer is, each formulation, each drug will vary. All right. So I have three more questions, one for lawyers and two for bankers. The lawyer question is, where's the IP for all this? Yeah. So the IP is all wholly owned at this point, unencumbered. We've got 12 issued patents, over 45 pending patents with various levels of protection from the underlying chemical composition to various applications using the science with the drugs. But you know, we have strong level of protection out to 2040 and beyond. So you still have those binders? I still do have those binders. And every time I uh, walk by them, I'm thankful when I see them. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now let's talk about some money. What's your current runway? What sort of conversations are you looking to have in the near future with investors? Yeah, we currently are capitalized to hit milestones and execute through the end of 2023. That said, we are in the midst of conversations with investors to potentially bolster the capitalization of the company, which just allows us to do more and do it more quickly. Of course, as you know, the markets are challenging right now. So we're open for business, but we're also not desperate, which is a good position to be in. But we're also 
cautiously optimistic that the markets will open back up and you know, we're positioning the company to access public capital in the next 12 to 18 months if the markets are willing and open. We've done all the things necessary there. We've started draft the S1. We've got two years of audited financials, et cetera, et cetera. So we're cautiously optimistic that, that these markets will stabilize and turn around, but also recognize that we can't control the markets. And so we just have to keep our heads down and do the best in executing and know that if we do the right thing, the markets will come when they're ready. Well, for all our jobs sake, I hope it's fairly soon. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap. Today, my guest is Dr. Ryan Beal. He is the co-founder and CEO of Dive Biosciences. Doctor, thank you for spending this time with me today. Thank you, Neil. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of life-size Benchtop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to ncanadad at lifesciadvisors.com. Until next week then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell, whatever boosts your portfolio.